studies if you guys know anything about those um, but the idea is packaging it all together into what we call the resolution the purpose the purpose is remember the purpose anybody actually know this one so with CPR the purposes always have a C in them so the call is easy it's to call people to righteousness. Yes. The problem is to convict people of their sin, which again, so you, you see the parallel, it's all C's with regards to, to John 16. So call to righteousness, convict of sin. What's this one? Creating life. Creating life would, would work. It is to Cure people from the judgment coming because of sin. So your three purposes, call, convict, and cure. Call to righteousness, convict the sin, cure the judgment. Call, convict, and cure. Yes. But the other part of this is really important too, because... Sometimes we can get overly negative with things. That's not good. And the second thing is, what needs to be at the heart of living a new life for this is Jesus, definitely. But a lot of times I talk to people about studying the Bible, and they ask, well, where does grace come in? This entire study is grace's masterpiece. It is where grace takes a front row seat. It's really not front row seat. It's the main player. It's the star of the show. Grace is literally the thing that drives all of it. And so our study here is to teach how we receive God's grace according to God. Grace is at the heart of the cross. Grace is at the heart of repentance. And grace is at the heart of baptism as well. And remember... Titus 2, for the grace of God who has appeared to all men, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. We learn to say no to ungodliness by understanding the grace of God. Pretty cool. Does that make sense? Yeah. Question about that? Great. But first, what do you do? Take the pulse. Take the pulse. Which is saying what? What do you know about? What do you already know about? Repentance. Sort of. Sort That's of. one of the things. Cross, Jesus. Cross, baptism, how yes. to resolve your sin. Oh. Remember, these, these, these things are like really, it's meant to be as simple as possible. The call. What do you already know about what Jesus calls you to do? Problem. What do you already know about the problem with your relationship with God? What do you already know about the resolution to that problem? Very, very simple. What do you already know about Jesus on the cross? And go with that stuff, it's great. Um, so, like, let's say you have to break this up cross, repentance, baptism, great. Hit those particularly. When you study the cross, it is really important to ask what do you already know 
Because the misunderstanding of what the cross really is, is at the heart of why so many people claim to be Christians and look nothing like Christians. Ultimately, if you understand the cross, you'll be fine. If you don't, you don't have problems. It's the way it is. So, that's really important. What are some common attitudes that we might come across with this particular study? Already have grace. So what? Like I already, already have grace? Yep. Would there be like, I've been baptized before? Could be, yeah. Honestly. Yeah, been saved. I got saved when I, you know, when I was a kid. Or I don't believe in baptism. Yep. Most of the time, most even people that don't believe in baptism, nobody says that. Nobody's like dumb enough to say that because the Bible commands it and Jesus did What will most people say? I don't think it's necessary for salvation. Yeah, and here's, here's the one that sounds the most spiritual. I believe baptism is important, but not necessary. It's important to get baptized. Jesus got baptized to fulfill all righteousness, but it's not a necessary condition for salvation. Maybe you've heard this one. Baptism is great, but it is an outward sign of an inward grace. It's a symbol, symbolic. It's my public confession of my lordship of Jesus. You ever heard that? No. Cool. All right, anything else? Okay. If I believe in Jesus, he will accept me. Repentance is asking for forgiveness. Baptism is important, but isn't necessary. And not knowing how the cross affects death. I spent most of my life going to Easter plays and watching the Easter videos and all that stuff. I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but it took me forever to figure out how did that help me. Because um, I honestly, as a kid, thought, that's not a very good plan, Jesus. Yeah. Why on earth would you die? Like, nobody goes, hey, you know, I'm short about 20 bucks. You know, oh, let me help you. I'm going to go die for you. Nobody thinks that. That solves no problems. In fact, that takes away a solution. Anything you could have done to help me, is now not available. Why does dying on a cross solve your problem? We all know he died on a cross for our sins. How does that help you? And today is the day that we get to show them that. Understand this, guys. When I personally believe that when you preach the cross and when you actually get to the cross study, maybe it's because this was the most important study for me. I think this is the most important study. Now, I understand there are turning points in every study. Some people, it's the word study, the call study. Some people, it's discipleship. Some people, it's when they study sin. Some people, it's baptism. I personally believe that this is, you can't mess this one up. This is a really, really important one because this is where you preach the gospel. And most people have never actually heard the gospel before where the dots are connected. That's the metaphor I use to describe it. I say, today what we're going to do is, because most people know Jesus died across their sins, I say, today we're going to connect dots for you. 
dots that you always knew were there to create a picture that you always suspected was there, but never quite recognized. That's what this is. Not to tell you some hidden thing that you've never considered before, but it's to connect dots for you, to make a picture that maybe you haven't seen before. And so this is really important. Today we preach the gospel, which is, it's, un, it's impossible to overhype this. This is the most important thing that anyone will ever hear in their lives. And that's actually the attitude I try to have every time I go into a cross study. Today I get to preach the gospel to someone. Today is the most important day of their life. Pretty epic. Because what happens on this day, and because of what we talk about, will change their life forever. Whether they know it or not. Okay, so the first thing, which is really the cross study, is what we're doing is we are basically teaching them that Jesus took your punishment because he loves you. And that's in essence what happens at the cross. I usually start at Romans 5. Anybody know the purpose of this one? Is that the reconciliation? The what? Is that the reconciliation? The reconciliation does come in at the end. Yeah. Okay. But God loves his enemies. Let's turn over there. Romans 6. Romans 5. Sorry. that for us? It's a good chance. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Jesus, oh, my bad, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we, shall we be saved, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we can also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Great. Thanks. Okay. One of the most common passages that we know, there's a bunch that you can get into here. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm going to run you through what I do. Here are the questions that I usually ask. There are four ways that we are described in this passage. What are they? Sinners. Sinners. Ungodly. Ungodly. Enemies. And powerless. The two I hone in on are powerless enemies. If you're powerless, what does that mean? You can't change the situation. You cannot change the situation. Greek word there is, is a parallel to, it just means weak. You can't do anything. You cannot affect change. What does that mean about can you do anything about your sin? No. The last thing it says is you are God's enemy. 
A lot of times I'll ask, have you ever considered yourself God's enemy? Most of the time we don't think of ourselves that way. That's really bad. But that's what this passage says, when we are ungodly sinners, that's what it takes to be God's enemy. Then I usually draw a parallel between, you know, who's an enemy to the United States right now? Yeah, someone like ISIS. If ISIS, if a member of ISIS saw you walking on the street, what would they want to do? Kill you. Yeah. Wouldn't be good. That's how enemies treat enemies. How does God treat his enemies? What does verse 8 say? God demonstrates his own love for us. That God looks at his enemies and says, I love you. That would be like as someone aims the bazooka at your head. You look at them, you look right down the barrel and you just say, I love you. Not to the point where you're not, it's you love them so much that it's not even that you are just willing to give your life or your money. It would literally be, I love you so much that I'm willing to, you know, let's say if that, that person got caught, I'd be willing to give the person I love most in this world up to set you free. It's where you offer up your mother, your father, your little sister, your little brother whoever it is. You know, can you imagine if an ISIS member got put in jail over here and you say, I'm not going to go in your place. I'm going to send the person I love the most to die in your stead, an ISIS member who still wants to kill me. Mm-hmm. What in the world? That is the level that's going on. That is how God feels about you. That is how much God loves you. Make sense? I mean, no, it doesn't make sense, but you, you see the connection here. And this is why it's important that at the heart of this whole thing is not the torturous violence that was done to Jesus, but it is the love of God for you. That he is offering you a relationship with him that in no way you deserved. That's grace. It's unmerited favor. So what I do at this point is I say, okay, so God loves you so much that he did what? He sent Jesus. And we're going to get into why and how all that works. But then I tell them, hey, you know how I've been asking you all these questions when we've been studying the Bible? Well, now I'm going to, I'm going to tell you that there's going to be a question that I'm going to ask a bunch throughout the next little series of scriptures here. And I'm going to tell you the answer. And most of the time you go, sweet, it's awesome. And I say, what we're going to do is... We're going to go through the passion narrative of Jesus, of him going to the cross. And I'm going to recap it throughout the time that we're studying it. And at the end of every recap block, I'm going to ask you this question. Why did Jesus do this? And here's the answer. Because Jesus loves me. Not us. Not we collectively. But me. It'll become clear why as we go through it. But that's important because at the heart of this needs to be not just that I'm guilted out because 
of the pain that Jesus went through, but I need to be motivated and compelled by the love that Jesus had for me. You with me there? Yeah. Cool. Any questions about that? Raise your hand. Uh, yeah, must ask questions. Yeah, okay. There's that. All right, now this next part here, um, for the sake of time, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to literally walk you through what I do on this one to see how it's set. And this is the one part, like, for the most part with these studies, I tend to take a, a, a view of. Um, we need to do a lot of questions and do a lot of guided discovery. This is the one time where I think it's okay to, to have the, the role switched a little bit, where you are doing a lot of talking, where you can actually preach a little bit or share. And there are questions that we still ask. I still ask a bunch of questions in here. But what I do is I encourage them before to go and read the last few chapters of Mark, read Mark 14 and 15, so that they have this under their belt. Um, and I'm recording this now because there's going to be a lot of background stuff that I go through right here that um, this is after a lot of practice of doing this but it's going to be difficult for you guys because it's not just like learn this question you'll see what I mean for a second, in a second but basically you're telling the story of Jesus going to the cross okay and I don't read I used to read literally from Mark 14:32 through 15:39 with them and my cross studies would be like several hours long. People did become Christians. Just wanted to put that out there. <laughs> but over time, learned how to condense and compress and highlight big things to, to really get to heart. So um, we'll go ahead and do that. So uh, Mark 14. Let's go to Mark 14. And uh, I, I, usually I, I let them know there's going to be a lot of reading here. And so we split it up. So I'll go... Maya, can you read verse 32 through 42, I believe? Yes, exactly. 32 through 42? 42. 42 through 42. Okay. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Okay, so here Jesus has finished up the last summer with his disciples and has traveled into the Garden of Gethsemane. 
uh, Gethsemane is at the foot of, uh, of the Mount of Olives, so if you read Luke, it's the Mount of Olives, so it's right there at the bottom, and it actually is, is a spot where all these olive trees are at. It's a regular prayer spot of Jesus. It's literally, you can see the temple from there. So the temple would have been, you know, you can see it from his prayer spot. And how does he describe his state of being? He says he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And on different accounts, it says that he's actually sweating, his sweat fell like drops of blood from his head. It's actually a, a rare condition, but not unheard of, that under extreme pressure, the capillaries, the blood vessels in your head, can actually burst under extreme pressure. And this would be a time where that makes sense, uh, where literally sweat, or that blood is starting to make, come into a sweat glands, and that you actually do start sweating blood. Whether or not this is a metaphor for just heavy sweat or that actually happened, we don't know, both fit. But since my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow toward death, and then he goes on, he goes to pray to God and he says, Abba, Father, which Abba would actually be the intimate way to describe God. Abba is Daddy. It's Papa. Nobody called God that. They might have even, you know, nobody ever called God Father. But to call him Abba. I mean, this is Jesus that is most vulnerable. And what does he say to God? Yeah. Take this cup from me. Now, what did what was a cup symbolizing back then? Wrath. Wrath. Yeah. In the Old Testament, God says, uh, "I'm about to pour my cup on, upon the nations." Uh, you could also be suffering, um, but most likely wrath. And so Jesus says, "Take this cup from me, but not my will, but what your will." Does Jesus want to go through with this? No. It's interesting. A lot of times we can think that Jesus was just stoically going to the cross because that was his mission. He didn't want to do this. But you have to take a look at it and say, wait, hold on. Jesus has been talking about this. This has been his mission from the beginning. Why is he trying to back out now? What is Jesus afraid of? And it wasn't pain. Or it might have been pain. I don't know. But you got to think that he's been prepping for this. That Jesus actually invented the you know, occipital lobe in the back of his head that was about to be pierced by the crown of thorns. He knew exactly the pain that would shoot through his arm when the nails were driven through the median nerve. He knew what would happen. And he'd experienced pain before. But it's interesting that to think that, hey, you know, the one thing that, that scares us the most is the fear of the unknown, for the most part. You know, the unknown that Jesus was about to go through was being defiled by sin. Defiled by your sin. <clears throat> Jesus, who had never known any kind of sin, is about to be defiled by everything that you had done. Think about it for a second. Think about the guilt and the pain and the suffering that you go through when you sin. You know, think about how bad you feel. And think about sometimes how the physical manifestations of that. And you get to experience that over an extended period of time. Can you imagine if I told you, hey, uh, tomorrow at 3.30, you're going to experience all the pain and the suffering from all of your sin for all of your life in that 
at 3.30. What do you think he'd do to you? He'd destroy us. If you made it out alive, that thing would kill most of us. Jesus is about to take on all of your sin, everything you've ever done, and everything that you ever will do. And oh yeah, he's doing that for every person that ever had lived, every person that was living, and every person that ever would live. That's all going on, Jesus. That's the pressure and the weight that's about to come on him, and he does not want anything to do with that. Jesus felt the weight of your sin. And that's where I ask, do you think you feel the weight of your sin? The way Jesus felt the weight of your sin. It's interesting, the word Gethsemane means olive press. And the way that you press olives is you have a a beast, like a, a donkey, basically pull a millstone around. You put olives in the bottom, it's this big, big stone and it just rolls over it. And it's a place where you just press out the grapes, or sorry, press out the olives, and out comes the olive oil. That is what is happening to Jesus. The pressure and the weight of sin is about to crush him. Now, just as in an olive press, you crush the olives to get oil, something useful. Jesus is about to be crushed for something useful, but still crushed nonetheless. Do you think you feel the weight of your sin the way Jesus did? You guys already start to see how the dots start to connect your sin to Jesus. Okay? Make sense here? And then if somebody goes and and they say, no, I don't think I do, and then I'll follow up, well, how do you think you can start to feel the weight of your own sin? Most of the time, it's coming back to to this to study out and to connect and recognize how terrible your sin is, but also what it does to God. Make sense? Make sense. All right. So what I do here after that is that I don't do um, I don't do everything. Okay, like I don't read everything through. This is where I actually paraphrase things. Okay, so I go after this. What happens is Jesus. At the end of this epic prayer time, he rises after he's wrestling in prayer. He says, for chance, if it means that chance will survive, I'll do that. God, let's do this any other way. Well, if I don't do this, chance dies. Well, then rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And he goes from someone who doesn't want to do this to somebody who's ready to go. And then comes the betrayer. And here, Judas Iscariot, one of his closest disciples, the guy you entrusted your money to. You know you always trust the person you give your money to. (laughs) He comes and betrays him with a kiss. A symbol that should have shown intimacy and trust ended up being the thing, the signal, that showed that he was going to get betrayed. Then I ask, you ever been betrayed before? How's that feel? Not great. Then they arrest him. And all the guys, who even they said it a couple hours earlier, I will never leave you. Even Peter, who said, even if everyone forsakes you, I'll never leave you. He dips. Have you ever been abandoned, felt alone by your friends? How did that feel? 
think about this. Then Jesus is brought up, dragged up, really, dragged up this hill up to Caiaphas' house and brought, you know, to stand before the Sanhedrin. And what that was, Jesus would have sat, not really sat, but stood in chains in the middle of the night in front of these guys, 70 guys that were uh, the high priests and a bunch of priests, people with authority. And they would have been sitting up elevated amongst them with uh, the high priest sitting right in front of them. 70 angry faces looking down at him. 140 eyeballs ready to judge him. And they start to accuse him of all sorts of things just to get him killed and executed. And he says nothing. Have you ever been accused of doing something that you've never done or that you didn't do? How do you usually respond? Yeah, seriously. I'm, I'm giving, I'm like, no. If somebody was to ever even insinuate that I was a Cowboys fan, I would fight that tooth and nail. If your life was on the line, would you respond? Would you defend yourself? Yeah. But Jesus says nothing. And why does Jesus say nothing? What happens if he defends himself and gets off the hook? He doesn't die, and therefore, you die. And here in this courtroom, everyone is lying to get him killed. And then he steps up, and he's the only one that tells the truth. And he's the one condemned to death. They ask him, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And he says, I am. Just tells the truth. Sentenced to death. And then after that, after a night, a terrible night, he is brought to Pilate because the Jews were a conquered people and they were unable to execute anyone. And that's where we're going to pick up in Mark 15. So we read verses 1 to 15. Sydney. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder and uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what they usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. They shouted out all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over him, handed him over to Jesus. Well, thanks, Eddie. Something I forgot is that at this point, before I read this passage, I recap. So I go, all right, so just to recap, Jesus has been up all night, praying, pouring his heart out in prayer, and sweating blood. 
okay? Overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, betrayed by one of his closest friends, abandoned by the rest of his friends, arrested, then mocked, condemned to die in a false trial, and then if you keep on going in what happens in that, he's actually beat up and spit on. And then I asked, so why did Jesus do all this? What's the answer? Because Jesus loves me. Then we keep going. Then we read this passage. Thanks so much, Sydney. Okay. Jews were conquered people. They didn't have the right to execute anybody. So that's why they had to bring Jesus to Pilate in order for him to actually be executed. And what happens there is that the high, the high priest, the, the priests, stir up the crowd to get them to crucify Jesus. Pontius Pilate, being the Roman governor, offers uh, kind of a weird... Um, He's got a kind of a, a, a tradition to keep the peace. Like, hey, I'm going to release a prisoner so that I can be popular with the people. And he gives them a choice. The worst of sinners or Jesus. There are only two reasons back then that people were executed on a cross. Anybody know what they are? Insurrection and murder. Insurrection and murder. What is Barabbas in jail for? Both of those. It's a double whammy. Is there any possible way that Barabbas is getting released. No, there is no way that he gets out of this alive. He has committed everything that you do if you want to get crucified. So here you have on one side, the sinner of sinners. Now on the other side, you have the perfect man. And he offers a choice. And who do the people pick? Barabbas. And you can just think about it for a second. We don't actually know if, if, if he brought out Barabbas. But just imagine this. Imagine you're Barabbas and you're sitting in your jail cell. A nasty, dirty, stinky jail cell where you're sitting in your own filth. They're not feeding you anything. You're going to die soon. Why would they do any of that? The fact that you're still alive is kind of crazy. And all of a sudden you hear the crowd outside. Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. You probably think to yourself, time's up time to die. Centurion comes in, jailer comes in, unlocks the door, says, you're free to go. Some guy named Jesus is taking your spot. And you walk out the front door after committing murder and treason like you did nothing wrong. Crazy, right? How do you think Barabbas responded? What do you think was different about his life after he was released? The thing is, we don't know. There's, I guess there's two options. One is maybe he truly understood the value of Jesus' sacrifice to him. And if that was the case, what would be different about his life? He would change his way. He wouldn't go back to his old sinful life. In fact, what he probably would do is dedicate his life to spreading the message about Jesus. You better know and better believe. Like, if this happened today, the, sec the second that he got out there, he'd be on Facebook. <laughs> or on Instagram. Hashtag freedom selfie. What up? <laughs> Hashtag, Hashtag Jesus. Yeah. And hey, no change on me. <laughs> <laughs> be awesome. 
He'd go and he'd be telling the story about, hey, let me tell you about the time that I was about to get executed, but Jesus took my place. And there's another side where he goes right back to what he was doing before. And here's the thing. If he goes right back to that and gets put back in jail, Jesus isn't there to die for him the second time. The response to Jesus' sacrifice. So here's the deal. Connect these dots. Barabbas, man, we think about different things about him. The truth is, you are Barabbas. You are in a jail cell of sin and powerless to free yourself. You have been condemned to death because of your own sin. And what happens is Jesus comes in and says, I'll take their spot. Maya shouldn't have to die. I'll take her spot. I know her sin, she should be going to the cross. But because I love her, I'm not going to let that happen. That's the, the dots that we can connect. If that's the case and you really understand that, what needs to be your response? What, what do you do after that knowledge? You should. The question is, do we? What would be different if you really understood what Jesus did for you? And it would always involve some kind of evangelism. But it definitely would mean going, leaving your life of sin. And then I always ask, have you ever responded to the cross like this? And if not, how have you? And then what happens is we get into something here that the, the author of Mark kind of glosses over because the first century audience wouldn't need any more explanation, but we do. The most underrated sentence in the Bible, possibly, is, then he had Jesus flogged. Have you ever seen The Passion of the Christ? This is like the worst scene. Yeah. It's the whipping scene. But if they have it, it's probably worth pulling up a little bit of YouTube and at least watching that scene for a couple minutes. And it's horrific, but it needs to be. And just so that you guys know what was going on there, they had a, a whip called the, uh, the flagrum. And what it was, strips of leather. At the end of these strips of leather were tied bits of broken glass, sharpened animal bones, metal balls, and metal hooks. And the idea is that you would, kind of in a throwing motion, the balls would hit your back and they would cause these bruising welts. And everything else, once that had happened, would dig into your flesh. The idea is to go throw it and it would go in and then pull. Sort of and rip and, and rip. And they would do that over and over and over again. And maybe if you thought that at some point in time it was 40 lashes minus one. No way. That was a Jewish rule. And these were Romans. They knew how to beat a man within an inch of his life without killing him. And so they wouldn't have stopped until they decided that Jesus was within an inch of his life. And what would happen there is that the, the outer layer, the epidermis, would be stripped from his body. 
exposing the dermis, the second layer where all the nerve endings are, causing huge pain, coursing up and down his body. And over time, what would happen is at the end of, of this, what it would probably look like as his hands were tied above his head, his back would look like ribbons of trembling flesh. If he could stand by the end of it, he'd be almost unrecognizable. And most likely about to go into shock from losing so much of his blood. And every single one of those whips should have been yours upon your back. Isaiah 53, by his stripes or by his wounds we are healed. Every time that you've cussed, rip. Every time you've been immoral, rip. Every time you've been disobedient to your parents or had a haughty look or had a proud thought, even. Jesus jumps in front of those whip strikes. All because of you. So at this point, Jesus has been up all night, sweating blood, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, abandoned, betrayed, arrested, false trial condemned to death and then flogged within an inch of his life. Why did Jesus do all this? Because Jesus loves you. Is that what? Oh, yeah. Okay. A few minutes. Um, I'll make it to the end of it. So, then what happens is Jesus is meant to carry his cross, which would have been the crossbar, actually. It would have weighed about 120 pounds. Jesus himself probably weighed about a buck 30, maybe a buck 50. Um, and then he's made to carry his cross through the winding streets of Jerusalem, which is actually very, very hilly, very, very windy, and very narrow. Um, so, there Jesus is. He has got to walk from about... Uh, so from the um, Antonio Fortress to the outside, which is about a mile and a half, winding streets, and the crowd presses in to see him. And all along the way, uh, it's no wonder that he fell and needed help, because he's probably in shock here. And then they go up and crucify him. Now, crucifixion, uh, the way you die from crucifixion is not by bleeding out. Uh, what ends up happening is that you, the nail goes through not your hand, but your wrist area. Uh, so that your radius and your ulna can keep your hand in place. And your feet were actually not put on top of each other. You actually, it was straddled on the side, either side of the cross, and they went through um, the sides so that you were straddled. What would happen is you put up here, and your body weight would come down. And as you were bleeding, but you wouldn't bleed out, this is all your main arteries. But what it does do is it goes right through the median nerve. It's one of the biggest uh, nerves in your body. And every time that there's any motion or anything like that that would go through, it would be like lightning coursing through your, your entire body, like stabbed with a thousand knives. What happens is you're up there, your body weight's pulling you down, and slowly your lungs are filling with blood. So what you have to do is you have to push up on your feet, pull up on your hands, and inhale, and then come down slowly but surely until you actually die. Most people died from crucifixion from either suffocation or what's worse, that they 
actually, most of them didn't die fast enough so that they would die by scavenging. Whether it was, you know, birds of prey or birds of, you know, scavenger birds that would come and just kind of peck at you. That would happen. Or, you know, wild animals that would just come up and eat you. Those things too. Jesus probably didn't die from suffocation because he breathed a loud cry at the end. He probably died from cardiac arrest. We'll get to all that. But anyway, that's what happens. They put Jesus up on a cross, and uh, then people are mocking him the whole time. All that stuff. Uh, and then I recap one more time, do all that. Uh, then we get to this last part. I will read this for the sake of time. Here we go. Um, the death of Jesus in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land to the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled it with a sponge of sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was, uh, was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion stood facing him, saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There is so much in this passage that I don't have time to unpack right now. But here's the essence. Jesus becomes the sacrifice for all of us. How were sins forgiven in the, in the Old Testament? Animal sacrifices. Okay? But what happened is you would have to take a lamb if you'd sin, and you have to put it on your shoulders and walk it down to the, uh, the altar. And what you do is you put your hand on the forehead of the animal, and you confess your sin, and in that moment, your guilt would transfer from you to the animal. And then you'd have to slit its throat and then hold its head in your hands while you watch the life drain from its eyes and the blood drain from its neck and feel it jerk for its life as it died. And that would be the moment that you would see the horrific lethality <laughs> The dangerousness, the, this awful, bloodied picture of sin and what sin does. That should be me, but God allows it to be this animal. In this moment, Jesus becomes that for us. And you see in Psalm, or in um, it, where it talks about, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus isn't losing faith. He's actually quoting a psalm, by the way, Psalm 22, which they would have known. Um, but in that moment, when Jesus turns his face to God, after taking on all of our sin, like it goes from us to him, when he calls out to God, he is separated from God. And the first time in history that Jesus turned his face to God, God could not answer. And then, just like the lamb was slain and cut its throat, Jesus dies and becomes our sacrifice, taking the death that should have been ours. Now, you always know how bad a problem is by what it takes to solve it. You go to the doctor, and they say, hey, take two pills, come back in two weeks, we'll see what happens. Problem's not that bad. You come into the doctor, they say, we got to get you the OR stat. Problem's pretty bad. This is the only solution that Almighty God had for your sin. That Jesus Christ, that God had to become man, live a sinless life, and then die for you. Your sin resulted in the death of a man, and that was the solution. How bad is your problem? Bad. But God decided that, hey, this would be worth it to save you. 
and then I recap one more time. So she's been up all night, sweating blood, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, betrayed, abandoned, arrested, false trial, said that they'd rather have a murderer set free than him, beat up, spit on, flogged within an inch of his life, made to carry his cross, insulted, spit on again, crucified, separated from his God, and died. Now, why did Jesus do all that? Because Jesus loves you. So why should you want to become a Christian? Because Jesus loves you. So what do we do about all that? That's where you go to Acts 2. We'll pick up on that next time. Sound good?